Hello and welcome to Carmichael Clan Radio, the official podcast of Clan Carmichael USA. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 11 of Carmichael Clan Radio. I'm your host, Scott Carmichael. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Laura Harrison, a Senior Cultural Resources Advisor at Historic Environment Scotland, a non-departmental public body in Scotland that cares for and promotes Scotland's historic environment. While earning her PhD at the University of Edinburgh, Dr. Harrison conducted research on the Declaration of Arbroath, and the names that it has used and been known by over the years. In her 2017 essay, titled That Famous Manifesto, The Declaration of Arbroath, Declaration of Independence, and the Power of Language, she expanded on her research around the naming practices of the Declaration of Arbroath and also investigated some of the possible reasons that the Declaration of Arbroath and the Declaration of Independence are often associated with one another although no scholarly evidence exists to support this link between the two. I was really excited that Dr. Harrison agreed to be on the show and that she was willing to talk more about her research with me. I've included the link to her 2017 paper in the show notes, and I hope that many of you will check it out because I found it to be an intelligent and informative article about a topic in Scottish history that I think is very interesting. One thing I should mention is that we also had a little bit of audio difficulty in this episode in the last half of the interview, so my apologies for that. I hope that won't deter you from listening and enjoying the show, and we'll do what we can do to make sure that doesn't happen again in the future. A few items of business before we get started. If you haven't reserved your spot to the Clan Carmichael gathering taking place this June 18th through 22nd, don't miss out on this opportunity to take part in a historic event in Clan Carmichael history. If you're interested in attending, you can follow the link in the show notes below or visit the Clan Carmichael International website at www.carmichael.co.uk. If you're interested in learning more or becoming a member of Clan Carmichael USA, make sure to visit the Clan Carmichael USA website. Visit www.clancarmichaelusa.com to learn more. One last thing before we get started. This year, we hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible contribution to Clan Carmichael USA. Donations can be made by clicking the Donate button at the top of the Clan Carmichael USA homepage or by following the link in the show notes below. Your donations help support Clan Carmichael USA as we expand and grow to do more in the future. And now, let's talk to Dr. Laura Harrison and learn more about the Declaration of Arbroath. Dr. Laura Harrison, thanks so much for joining me today on Carmichael Clan Radio. I know it's late where you are, but I do really appreciate you joining me today. So I want to talk about the Declaration of Arbroath, obviously. Most people who are probably listening to the show are somewhat familiar with the Declaration of Arbroath. But before we jump in and get too deep into that, and also about your article that you wrote in 2017, I wanted to go over just a few of the basics about the history of the Declaration of Arbroath. So if you will, you know, tell me what was happening at the time in Scotland politically 
during the years leading up to 1320? And why was the Declaration of Arbroath even necessary? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Scott. First of all, I'm really, really pleased to be here and definitely worth staying up late for. And I'm also very impressed if, if lots of the listeners do know about the Declaration of Arbroath. You're doing better than, than lots of Scottish people, I would say. So the sort of situation around the Declaration of Arbroath is that it's coming towards the end of the first Scottish War of Independence. So this sort of kicked off around 1286 when King Alexander III, the King of Scots, he died prematurely when he was riding his horse on his way to visit his wife. And his only remaining heir at that point was his granddaughter, Margaret, who is known as Margaret, made of Norway. And she was in Norway at that time. She was just a toddler. A few years later, she was sent to Scotland, and I think this is the most relatable death in Scottish history. She died of seasickness on the way to <laughs> Orkney. Uh, we think, who knows, she might probably had some sort of illness or something, but seasickness certainly contributed. So after that, there was no clear king or queen or, uh, you know, monarch for Scotland. So this is where the Wars of Independence kicked off. Um, I know that you'll have other speakers who will get into this more, so I don't want to spend too much time here. But I'm sure that your listeners will be aware of some figures from it, like William Wallace, made famous by Braveheart, of course. Um, also, Robert the Bruce, who became King Robert I of Scotland. And... Coming up to 1320, so coming up to the time of the Declaration of Arbroath, Bruce was king of Scotland, but Scotland was still under constant threat of invasion from England, from, by this point, King Edward II of England. Mm. Bruce had also been excommunicated multiple times by the Catholic Church, including once for killing his sort of rival to the throne, John Common. So multiple excommunications by the church and that happened in a church so that was particularly right. uh, frowned upon um <laughs> and some of his subjects in scotland still did not recognize his right to rule so i should say that the borders of scotland aren't weren't exactly the same as they are now but getting closer um and yeah some of the areas of scotland still didn't recognize his rule so he was really sort of struggling to maintain his kingship and his sort of control over the country in the lead up to the document and so what did the declaration say in general? Was it trying to kind of stamp his authority on the kingship and put himself in the position? He was trying to get recognition from Pope John the Twenty-Second, right? Yeah, absolutely. So there were sort of three main requests in the declaration. So the first was for the Pope to recognize Scotland as an independent nation that had never been formally recognized. It was still sort of, is it together with England? Is it its own thing? Is Scotland separate pieces? You know, that was still all not formally recognized. Uh, the second was recognition of Bruce as the rightful king of the Scots or king of Scotland depending on what you want to say. Uh, so again, mm -hmm. Bruce as the rightful ruler and thus his heirs and things after him as well. And then the third request of the declaration was for the Pope to put pressure on Edward II to stop invading Scotland, essentially. Um, and it was quite clever how they went about that in that they tried to appeal to the Pope with the Crusades. So there okay. was lots of Crusades happening at the moment. And they said, you know, if Edward stops invading our country, then we could all go and fight for you in the Crusades. So really trying to appeal to him in that way. Oh, okay. That is clever. Yeah. And so that's what the Declaration said. And I should say at this point that actually... 
the Declaration of Our Birth is one of three letters that was sent to the Pope at this point. So one was from Bruce, one was from the clergy, and then one was the one that we have at the moment, which was sort of from the barons and the nobles and the community of the realm, it says, is sort of supposed to be from the people. Okay. And we know this because we know that there were responses sent for the three letters, but we don't know what the other two said. There's no record of them or anything. We assume they said sort of similar things, but but we don't actually know. This is the only one that we have. Okay. So one was from Bruce, one was from the nobles. Um, I think I read that, that we know the Pope received all three letters because of a note that had made a comment about them. Is there any evidence about what his responses said, or did he respond to those three letters? So we can sort of try to infer based on sort of what happened next in that he did seemingly appeal to Edward to stop invading and eventually did recognize Bruce's legitimacy as king. So presumably he saw them favorably, but that's kind of all we can do is really infer. Yeah, we don't have any. And we actually, I mean, I think that there's still secret hope that they yeah. might at some point turn up in, you know, the Vatican archives or something. Mm -hmm. So even the declaration itself, we only have because a copy was made that was held in Scotland. So that's the only reason that we even have that one. So they've never been found, um, the okay. actual copies that were sent. So we assume that they don't exist anymore, but I think they're still, you know, one day they might turn up. I think that's reasonable to maintain hope. You know, it could happen. Especially for a, for a scholar and a researcher. That's, that's why you go into work every day, hoping that something like that will turn up. Exactly. You have to have the hope. So the, on the existing document that they did keep in Scotland, it, it's trying to get those three things also. Recognition of Scotland, recognition of the king. Those three items are in that document, right? Yeah, so as far as we know, those two are identical. So the one that's currently in the National Records of Scotland is, yeah, as, as far as we know, basically what was sent to the to the Pope. Okay. Hmm. I don't know that this is common knowledge. This is something that I've seen a lot, is that the Declaration of Arbroath is kind of regarded as the basis of modern democracy today. I guess because of the statement in it that, you know, Bruce would be king until he no longer represented the Scots. Is that correct to attribute this document as being the, the birthplace of modern democracy? I mean, that's sort of the million dollar question. Um, I don't, I think it would be going too far to, to call it sort of the birthplace of modern democracy, but mm -hmm. certainly I think we can include it in a collection of medieval documents that all sort of seem to have this kind of early idea of sort of popular sovereignty or like sovereignty of the people in them. Mm -hmm. And I think that the reason that the declaration is often referred to that is there's sort of two reasons. So the first is that it does have this early expression of what you could call contractual monarchy, which is what you were talking about, that the sovereignty is dependent on the people. So okay. if Bruce, for example, allowed a return of English rule, then his people could depose him and replace him. There's sort of that clause in there. And then the second reason is because of some of the rhetoric in the document. So there's two famous passages. Right. And inevitably, I'm paraphrasing here because the original text is in Latin. <laughs> but the, the first one is something like, as long as 100 of us remain alive, we will never on any condition be brought under English rule. Uh, so that one's often often brought out as a popular one. And then the second one is 
the most famous part of the document for sure, which is, it is in truth not for glory, nor riches, nor honors that we are fighting, but for freedom, for that alone, which no honest man gives up, but with life itself. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's stirring, stirring. words. I think it's still, yeah. yeah, it still feels really relevant. And actually, a lot of people don't realize that this is possibly or even likely, I would go so far as to say, referencing words written by a Roman historian, Sallust. Oh, okay. And if you compare the two in Latin, which a uh, shout out to uh, Arbroath Abbey and the new exhibition there that talks about <laughs> the Declaration of Arbroath, but they, they have a really good section where they where they do compare the, the Latin of the two and show, you know, how similar they are. Oh, okay. And it wouldn't have been unusual at the time for a highly educated man like Abbot Bernard, who we think probably was responsible for writing the Declaration, to have known about, you know, Roman history and things. And again, you can see how those words would have felt appropriate at the time when they were trying to sort of maintain and prove their independence and also how they continue to feel relevant for various reasons today as well. That kind of leads to the next thing I was going to ask you about. In your essay, That Famous Manifesto, The Declaration of Arbroath, Declaration of Independence, and the Power of Language, um, in the essay you mentioned that there's virtually no evidence that many people within Scotland knew of the existence of the letter and this part I highlighted and underlined, including the, the 47 barons and nobles whose names and seals appear on the document. So you mentioned that Abbot Bernard is thought to have written it. Did the nobles and barons have any idea this existed? I mean, because when you see the document, it's very, you know, it's this majestic looking thing and has all the wax seals on it. And it looks really cool. But did they know that their seals were even affixed to the document itself? So inevitably, we don't know exactly. Sure. Likely some would have known more than others, but I, I sort of like to think of the document as kind of, if you think about it as coming sort of from the Bruce administration to use kind of modern terms. So it was certainly kind of a, a joint effort of sort of a something that the people closest to Bruce wanted to kind of put out to help yeah. in all of these situations. So inevitably there were probably quite a few people involved in actually writing it or at least you know drafting it and things mm -hmm. but yeah how much the people who sealing it actually knew about it, it it probably varied a lot so as as we said abbot bernard of our broth was one of bruce's closest advisors he was also quite a learned man he wrote other documents at the time so he just seems the most likely candidate as the person who is probably most responsible for the writing of it. Okay. Um, it's possible that it was worded at New Battle Abbey, which is near mm. Edinburgh. You can still visit uh, where Bruce held a council in March of 1320. So theoretically the month before the declaration, because we don't actually know if the date of April 6th on the declaration has any meaning or if that was just sort of put on there to appeal to the Pope. Oh, okay. It could be one of those things where it was trying to look like they sent it earlier than they did, maybe, you know, like a, a oh, student yeah. putting a date on earlier yeah. or something. That's exactly what I thought of. Yes. So, so again, we're, we're not sure, you know, what that date actually means. Hmm. And then the letter itself actually may have been written at New Battle or it may have been written later at our broth. Although certainly, we think some sealing happened at our broth, which is another point that, um, so yeah, in terms of signing the document, the wax seals that you talked about that are affixed to the bottom of it are sort of the signatures, but there's been some really interesting research into the wax itself that shows that it was too uniform for the document to have traveled around. Oh, wow. So it was probably sealed in sort of only a few batches. So 
it's unlikely that every noble person named on it traveled to the document. It wasn't uncommon for them to send someone with their official seal. Okay. So then they wouldn't have read it. And then also... There are names above each of the seals, and the names and the seals don't all match, which sort of is inclined to think that they were expecting people that didn't turn up, and some people turned up they weren't expecting, they were just like, sure, the more seals, the better. <laughs> hmm. That's really interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the paper that you wrote in 2017. In it, one of the topics were the different names that the Declaration of Arbroath has had over the years and how, in lots of cases, the name that was being used at whatever point in time was the name that best fit the needs of the various interests of different groups. So talk a little bit about that and about the different names that were used and how those names served to promote the interests of various groups throughout Scotland. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first of all, just to give a little bit of sort of background to that research. So I did complete a survey of sources that talk about what we now call the Declaration of Arbroath um, between 1800 and 2012, which tells you when I was doing this research that that was my cutoff point. And that's because that's when the document was gaining popularity and when it was sort of being written about. Um, we can talk about it, but there's very few mentions of it before then. And uh, I served, so I surveyed 52 sources in total. So it's not a perfect method as I was looking for a representative sample rather than I didn't have a sort of concrete collection to go off of, but I think it gives a good idea of the shifting name changes over that time. So for a long time, the document was known as a letter or as the Baron's letter was what it was commonly called before this period. And I think that that is the most accurate name for it. So it was a letter to the Pope. Um, so arguably, yeah, we should all. And I know of at least one scholar who insists on only calling it the letter from our bro, uh, which is fair. But yeah, so I would say historians like to call it a letter or try to downplay at least kind of calling it by these much bigger, fancier names. Some of the best names come from the 19th century, from the 1800s, when it was sort of trying to figure out what to call it. There was quite a few mentions of it being called a manifesto, which I quite like. Or once it was called a grand remonstrance, which is very fancy. <laughs> it uh, is. Yes. And we do actually get as well from that period the first known uses of Declaration of Arbroath, which is quite early. It was in yeah. 1865. And then that name that I found was not mentioned again for nearly 50 years. So I'm not sure where it came from, but all of a sudden. And then similarly, five years later in 1870 was the first known use of Scottish Declaration of Independence. But in terms of the different groups, so yeah, we talked a little bit about academics and things. I would say that Declaration of our Broth is definitely the most used now, mm -hmm. especially in Scotland. Uh, and I would say because it's the most commonly known. So anyone who is trying to talk about the document in a popular way is going to use Declaration of our Broth. Uh, okay. But I think it's interesting how often you still do see Scottish Declaration of Independence. And I noticed that especially in American sources. And I wonder if that's <laughs> because people might know about the supposed connection between the Scottish Declaration of Independence, as it would be called, and the American Declaration of Independence, or if because it's a familiar term, or maybe it is just more common to call it that in America, I'm not sure. So, But it's interesting that there does seem to be that 
Although in Scotland around sort of 1950, sort of around the middle of the 20th century, it was a bit more common to call it the Scottish Declaration of Independence before that kind of faded away. Well, you mentioned in your article, too, that I guess it was it was Walter Scott had used the declaration as, I don't know, maybe sort of a talking point or something to back him up. And he was a he was kind of in support of the union between England and Scotland. Is that right? Yes. And so he used some some words out of the declaration just to use it for what he needed it for. Is that is that's right? Yeah, isn't it? I, yeah. You can't talk about Scottish history without talking about Walter Scott. It's just a necessity for him. I'm sure <laughs> to come up in every episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Walter Scott did reference the Declaration of Arbroath. He said that he liked its manly spirit of freedom, which is fair <laughs> enough. And so Walter Scott was a really good example of what. We sort of tend to a useful term from the historian Graham Morton, which is unionist nationalism. So it talks about this use of Scottish history in the 19th century that was it was promoting Scottish history and celebrating Scottish history and saying we should know more about Scottish history. It's not the same as English history, mm -hmm. but the purpose of was the, of that was not any sort of Scottish independence at the time, but was much more about Scotland having a more equal place in the union. Okay. And it's, and it's quite amazing to people who know about Scottish history today, because figures, especially like William Wallace and things were seen as a figure of unionism, which is so opposite of how he's seen today. That but the strange. idea was sort of, it's, it is very strange, but the idea was sort of that there was this, um, it was kind of an inevitability that there would be the act of union and that Wallace was kind of one point in this essential, you know, struggle before the countries could come together and appreciate being together. It was It was sort of the idea. I'm sure Wallace would love that. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what he was doing. <laughs> Absolutely. And there is something that we'll talk about in a minute that I can't wait to talk about. And it's it's the uh, the Braveheart connection. When we start talking about this, this tying the Declaration of Arbroath with the Declaration of Independence, because when I was reading your article for the first time, I kept thinking like I was looking at Resolution 155 thinking, in what year did that come out? And then Braveheart, in what year did that come out? And they're real close. Um, one last thing about the names of the Declaration in your paper. You also mentioned, well, you said a minute ago, too, that it was around 1950, early 1900s that it started, you started seeing the name Declaration of Arbroath showing up more. Do you know a reason why it was around that time that it started to be called the Declaration, or is that just was that just pure coincidence? I don't know of a specific reason for sure, or haven't been able really to even hypothesize of one yet. Okay. I think that it was probably a bit of a confluence of reasons. I think probably as more started to be written about the document, then it sort of makes sense that an agreed upon name would come up. Also, as more people started to study it and things just as it gained in people's knowledge about it. So yeah, that's what I would suspect, but would be very open if anyone had any other thoughts about, about why that could be. Maybe I'll, I'll work on a a uh, dissertation on that one day and look at the use, the use of declaration over time. And if that was, you know, it could be a popular word at the time. Maybe that was kind of the, the buzzword of the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. All right. So let's talk now. This is something I'm really interested in talking about is, is this connection between the Declaration of Arbroath and the Declaration of Independence. So when I wrote this article about the Declaration of Arbroath for Clan Carmichael, 
my first version that went out in our newsletter put forth the idea that Thomas Jefferson was inspired by the you know by the Declaration of Arbroath when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Um, luckily, that never made it into my U.S. government class that I teach, because I later found out that that's most likely, if not definitely, untrue. Um, you say there is there's really no evidence to support the connection between the two, right? Yeah, so the story goes that while writing the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson was influenced by the central theme that we were talking about at the sovereignty of the people of the Declaration of Arbroath. And I think that, yeah, we can get into this of that sort of if he was influenced, I think is different than, you know, he had a copy of the Declaration in front <laughs> of him that he thought what sounded good. And I think we can definitely say he didn't have a copy of the Declaration. In fact, a scholar has done a study of all of the sources used by all of the compilers of the Declaration of Independence and also their personal libraries. Um, and he says this, and I'll quote him because I think it's really funny. He says, the De Declaration of Arbroath is conspicuous only by its total absence, <laughs> which is a great way to say it wasn't in anything. That's funny. Um, but all of that being said, I think that there is a little bit of nuance to that. So like we were saying earlier, the Declaration of Our Broth is part of a number of medieval documents or is one of a number of medieval documents that do kind of have this idea of popular sovereignty. And I think you could argue mm -hmm. that that idea and maybe those collection of documents had some sort of influence. I think that's certainly the furthest that I would, <laughs> that I would go in saying that. So I think it, you know, we don't know for sure. It's likely we'll never know for sure. But I think right. certainly saying there's any direct connection between the two would be an error. Yeah. Well, that sounds reasonable also to, you know, include it in a collection of documents that establish the idea of popular sovereignty that maybe influence the, you know, the framers of the Constitution of the United States and, and the founding fathers. That seems reasonable. I think it's interesting, though, that there's really no evidence that you know, he was directly influenced by the Declaration of Arbroath, despite that point being very widely accepted in both the United States and Scotland. <laughs> I felt like I'd been lied to when I started to get into this research more. You know, I had read the resolution 155 that the U.S. Senate passed. I don't think I have the, the actual quote in front of me, but it, it says kind of matter-of-factly that Jefferson was inspired by the Declaration of Arbroath. Why do you think there's so much romanticism behind connecting these two documents? I think that there are a few things that could go into that. I think the first is that we tend to romanticize the Middle Ages. I think Umberto Eco said, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, I think we really like the Middle Ages. And I think that's, <laughs> that's very accurate. I think that it's really tempting to draw a link between kind of the medieval and the modern. And in this case, it would be connecting the early modern. And I just, I can understand that it's a nice story. And so when that opportunity is there for people, then it absolutely makes sense to, to put that on. There was someone who was sort of tangentially related to the U.S. government when I was giving a, a talk about this once. And they sort of said to me afterwards, I'm completely convinced by what you're saying, but I, I really want to believe it's true. Yeah. And I think that that kind of sums it up. People want to believe it's true. And that's very powerful. I also think that there is a lot of romanticism with the links between Scotland and the U.S. Yeah. And I think that's great. <laughs> there are lots of links and there's lots of links between, you know, Scotland and anywhere where lots of Scottish people mm -hmm 
including my home country of Canada, there's lots of very similar uh, romanticism and things. But again, I think that that just can't help but sort of contribute to people wanting to believe that it's true. Yeah. And then I think Scotland itself is kind of inherently romanticized in popular culture. Um, I mean, if you think of just sort of recent films and TV shows with Outlander and Braveheart and Outlaw King and Mary Queen of Scots and even Brigadoon and things. So I think that we're just used to romanticizing Scotland as a country itself as well. So Mm -hmm. I think that, again, that just created this perfect like almost like this perfect mix where it was ready for some sort of then like foundational connection between the two countries. If anything could be pointed to that people would really like that and want to sort of perpetuate that. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's true that, you know, there are a lot of things in, you know, television or in movies that romanticize Scotland. And it does seem like people really enjoy that. Um, and don't really care what the facts say. You had a great quote in the paper you wrote. Um, where you said that historical truth is generally not a prerequisite for the truth of public opinion. And I thought that was great. I mean, I'm sure that when the U.S. Senate passed the legislation, I mean, obviously they didn't have any evidence that the two were connected. They just wanted to believe that, which brings me to the point that I think was kind of jumping out at me. I kept thinking when I was reading your article, I was asking myself, when did Braveheart come out? And so you mentioned the Braveheart connection. Can you talk about that just a little So yeah, Braveheart, I think, has a lot to do with all of this. So Braveheart came out in 1995 and then swept the 1996 uh, (laughs) Oscars, which I think Mm -hmm. we all like to forget that Braveheart won Best Picture, but that did happen. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And uh, It's hard to believe now, isn't it? I know, it's hard to believe now. But, I mean, I've heard this before from Scottish historians, and I think it is true that there is sort of a, like, before Braveheart and after Braveheart in terms of interest in Scottish history, because it was just such a massive shift, both in Scotland and elsewhere as well. It certainly was true in Scotland as well. I mean, that was my first introduction to Scottish history. It was probably yours as well. I mean, I think lots of people, um, I think, would be lying if they said if yeah. they said otherwise. And so I think that Braveheart's taken a real swing for a number of reasons because of its inaccuracy because of people involved with it for lots of reasons but I think that that doesn't limit its sort of popularity at the time and its continuing popularity for people in thinking about Scotland but in terms of the immediate impact that as you say so we talked about 1995-1996 so Mm -hmm. 1998 was when Tartan Day was created, so absolutely immediately after. So I think that we can't help but say that's not just a coincidence. And in fact, Senator Trentlot did say that he was sort of inspired by <laughs> Braveheart into looking into this more. So we don't even have to say it's a coincidence because he <laughs> confirmed it for us, that at least the interest came from from that. Yeah. Well, and it seems that both both countries, the United States and Scotland, have an interest in perpetuating this myth of the connection. Um, the United States, uh, I guess theirs would be kind of a connection with just these ancient traditions of popular sovereignty, since that's what we like to uh, attach to the Declaration of Arbroath. Also, what would you say that Scotland has to gain out of the whole, you know, the whole myth of the connection? Yeah, it's, in terms of the U.S., I think that the other thing with, especially with Tartan Day being introduced, is that Tartan Day looks like a lot of fun. I mean, I haven't been, well, now it's Tartan Week, I guess, but 
I haven't been before, but the the parade in New York and things, it all looks, it looks great. And I absolutely understand, you know, lots of societies and things have events around the day and things kind of like another Burns night. And I think that people like to have reason to celebrate and things. So I absolutely understand why it was appealing at the beginning and it continues to be appealing. And now Tartan Week is celebrated in New Zealand, Australia, Argentina, Canada, and Scotland hmm. as well. It's actually... It's not like a holiday in terms of being off work in school or anything, but it is a holiday in Scotland as well, which I think is funny that it didn't start in Scotland, but no, it Do they is. all celebrate on April 6th also? All on April 6th as well, yeah. Okay. Hmm. But yes, in terms of Scotland benefiting from this connection, I think it's tourism. If you look at the mention of the Declaration of Our Growth, both in the UK government, but it hasn't been mentioned that much then, but especially in the Scottish Parliament since it opened in 1999, there are, I think it was just over half of the mentions of the Declaration of Our Growth are talking about how to use it to uh, okay. entice tourists to Scotland. Um, obviously, tourism is really important to the Scottish economy. And so it makes sense that any sort of connection between mm -hmm. Scotland and America would be enticing for, for people to try to encourage tourists to come visit. That makes sense. Yeah. And I tell you, this is a real common theme I keep seeing popping up in these podcast episodes is that if there's a reason to put on a kilt and drink, then we'll make a holiday out of this. This is the third time that's come up. It was Burns Night. And then we I was talking with a man about common riding traditions in the border areas. And essentially it was, well, that's a reason to, to get together for a week and, and, and have a celebration. So that's a, a real common theme I keep seeing show up. It's a long, dark winter in, uh, in Scotland, <laughs> so you need, you need these things. That's funny. Uh, it is funny. Um, it's, I just thought your article, when I was reading it, was it was a lot of fun to read. It was almost funny, these, the insistence on attaching these two documents together. You know, if, if it works for both countries, then I guess we'll just keep on doing that. I actually ran, and I don't know if you've heard this or not, I ran across this. The, it is said now that Thomas Jefferson is a descendant of... Is it Malcolm III that also Robert the Bruce was a descendant? So apparently Thomas Jefferson is also a descendant of Malcolm III. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever run across that, but I did see that in the writing of that article. That is another uh, thing that comes up quite often in terms of trying to defend this idea is that, you know, saying how many of the, of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence had Scottish ancestry, mm -hmm. which, first of all, doesn't mean that you would know anything <laughs> about the Declaration of Our Growth. Um, and even, I think two of them were actually born in Scotland, but even then, you know, the points made of how few people in Scotland at the time would have heard of the Declaration of Our Growth, let alone, you know, in colonial America. So That's true. This is all pre-Wikipedia. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's much, or at least equally likely, that they would have heard of the Roman connection of the Roman historian that I was talking about earlier, Sallust. I mean, it's uh, this is entirely a hypothesis, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's possible that that is part of the connection. Hmm. It may be as boring as they just sat down and thought of something to write, too. Absolutely. That's probably by far the most likely <laughs> yeah. reasoning. Yeah. Sadly, that's probably right. So tell me about your work at uh, Historic Environment Scotland. What does Historic Environment Scotland do, and, and what do you do with them? So Historic Environment Scotland is the lead public body in Scotland, uh, which was established to investigate, care for, and promote Scotland's historic environment. 
some of the listeners will probably be familiar with Historic Scotland, Mm -hmm. which is sort of a sub historic environment Scotland came together uh, a few years ago as sort of an amalgamation of a bunch of different organizations. And one of them is Historic Scotland, who's responsible for more than 300 properties across Scotland, including Arbroath Abbey is one of them, but also Edinburgh Castle, Scarra Bray, Fort George, Stirling Castle, and about 331 others other than that. And that's where my job comes in is with those, we call them the properties in care, those 336 properties. Um, so my job title is a senior cultural resources advisor. Okay. And what the team that I'm on does is we're essentially historians and archaeologists, and we give advice for those properties across the estate. So it could be if there's works that are happening on the site and we sort of say what would be, you know, historically appropriate to do or not to do sometimes for events and that kind of thing. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, We do lots of research into the properties. So helping our interpretation team do the research for new guidebooks and audiobooks and interpretation panels and all that kind of thing. Also our uh, learning teams. So talking to schools and that sort of thing. Hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's quite varied, but I would say, yeah, the overarching theme is sort of giving advice for the estate so we can care for them appropriately. That sounds super interesting, though, too. I'm sure it's really, really uh, rewarding work. It is, yeah. It's. You said you were recently at Arbroath Abbey, right? Yeah, I was at Arbroath Abbey on Monday, which was very appropriate. And I mentioned it earlier, but there is a new, a, a new exhibition there that was opened. It was supposed to open in 2020, but inevitably opened in 2021. Right. Uh, and it's about... It's a bit the history of the Abbey, but inevitably quite a bit of it is about the Declaration of Arbroath. And I wasn't involved in the exhibition because I didn't work at Hess yet. So I can say that I think it's really well done. And if anyone is visiting, then it's it's certainly worth a visit. Okay. And if I'm not mistaken, there are memberships that are available. Absolutely. So yeah, there are Historic Scotland memberships available. So the big draw, if you're in Scotland, is that there is free access to all of those Historic Scotland sites. But um, I know lots of the listeners will not be based in Scotland. Um, So there are still some benefits. So there's a quarterly members magazine, and it does ship internationally. That's included in that. Okay. And uh, my team is really involved in in the production of that magazine, both in terms of like checking it and things, but also actually writing for it. It's really useful. I I was a member before I worked for Historic Environment Scotland, and that was definitely a highlight of the membership. There's also a 20% discount in all the shops, which includes the online shop. So again, that's something that could be taken advantage of from afar. We do have have some international members, which I always think is amazing. I feel like a lot of the listeners, it seems like a lot of the Carmichaels I've met visit Scotland fairly regularly. Uh, There's a whole bunch that are going across in June. We're having a Carmichael, like a clan Carmichael gathering. And so I know a lot of them are going then. And the, uh, it's a magazine you said that comes out quarterly? Yeah, it's a full, yeah, it's like a full sort of color glossy okay. magazine that gets sent out. Yeah. So, huh. and yeah, it's, yeah, it's quarterly. So yeah, four of those a year. Okay. Do you know, so how can listeners learn more about uh, Historic Environment Scotland and also about you too? If you're active on uh, social media, you know, how can, how can listeners find out more about you and your work? Yeah, so in terms of Historic Environment Scotland, the website is just hess.scot, so H-E-S dot Scott, uh, with one T. And then 
our comms team are also really active on Twitter and Instagram and things. So if you just search for, you know, Historic Scotland or Historic Environment Scotland, then you definitely find them. And in terms of myself, then I am occasionally active on Twitter. Uh, so I'll give you my Twitter handle so maybe you could share it. But yeah, it's just Laura S. Harrison. Okay. I'll put it in the show notes where if any if you have any Twitter users, they'll they can check it out. Okay, so, perfect. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time. I don't want to I don't want to keep you too long, but I really do appreciate you joining me on Carmichael Clan Radio, and uh, and thanks for talking to me about your article and about the things you're doing at Historic Environment Scotland. Um, I admit I'm I'm super jealous of the work that you get to do there. It sounds really really interesting, and uh, and we appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. It was lovely to have the invitation and really fun to revisit this research. So thank you so much. Once again, a big thank you to Dr. Laura Harrison for joining me on today's show. Without the kindness and willingness of our guests, this show couldn't go on. So take a minute, if you can, and visit the show links in the show notes to find out more about what all of our guests have going on. Reach out to them to say thanks, interact with them, and let them know that you're listening. To find out more about Historic Environment Scotland, visit their website at www.hes.scot, or visit their social media links listed in the show notes. As always, if you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and to share it with anyone else that you think might be interested in the shows. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or subscribe to the new Clan Carmichael USA Substack page at clancarmichael.substack.com. As I've mentioned before, I sometimes publish the occasional essay, so if that's something that you think you might want to read, then go ahead and sign up and be sure to receive all the latest from Clan Carmichael. And finally, if you like what we're doing, please leave a five-star rating, a positive review, or leave some feedback in the comments section. Your reviews help to promote the show and make it easier for others to find us. And it lets me know that you're enjoying the show. So, until next time, toujours prêt. See you soon. <laughs>